Welcome to the Story Discovery Podcast. I'm your co-host, J.W. McAteer. Coming up, you'll hear a new work from our free online publication, Etched Onyx. Please join me and co-host Melissa Collings after the reading when we talk with the author about their work and all things writing and otherwise. Before we begin the show, I wanted to let you know that our fall edition contest is now open for submissions. Our terrific guest judges, Katie McDougall and A.M. Malin, will be selecting the prose and poetry winners. More details about our judges, the rules, and how to submit your works can be found on our website at onyxpublications.com. The contest closes on Sunday, August 28th, and there is a $12.50 submission fee. We look forward to reading your amazing works. This podcast and all related materials are a production of Onyx Publications. All works, stories, and poems are copyright 2022. All rights reserved. Today's story is The Concrete and the Tree, written by Sky Gilkerson and narrated by Melissa Collings. Settle in and enjoy. The Concrete and the Tree by Sky Gilkerson What I need you to know is this. I am 11 years old, quiet and curious. Now and again I like to wander between rows of late July cornstalks, sunbeams peeking through the wide ribbed leaves clattering gently in the wind and bending toward me like long floppy puppy ears. But mostly I'm an indoorsy type. I may be the subject of contempt at school, but I don't investigate the matter. Several years ago, with all sincerity, I asked my dad if I might be an alien. I know what you mean, he said. Today, my dad and I are collected at the dining room table. He sits as I stand next to him, both of us looking at the mail he received from a company that helps farmers. There is a new elixir, a wonder of science. He explains the graphs to me. It costs this much money, and the cows produce this much more milk. A sound investment. The point is to keep up with the times. The point is to save family farms. The point is to work hard and be the very best at your job. My arms itch, and I try not to scratch, as instructed. An absolute impossibility. I go to my bedroom and scratch with abandon until the scaly skin on my arms that I carefully hide from kids at school finally bleeds, and I feel relief for now. I have elixirs of my own, aloe gel meant for sunburns, cortisone cream from the bathroom drawer that promises relief from itching, a tiny sample tube from my uncle, the doctor, of something he said not to use too much. It's worse in the summer because of the sweating the heat. I detest swimming pools, which require that I bear myself, and because the turquoise water stings on contact. Or maybe it's worse in winter. The dry air makes my limbs feel desperately parched, covered in snake skins trying to get free. 
Loose fibers from my sweaters somehow burrow themselves under this crispy exoskeleton and yank each time I move. I stare at the smooth arms of kids at school. We get this stuff, and it works. The cows produce more milk. We are clever and modern and relevant. I am 16 years old, stumped and amused to find the basement bathtub filled to overflowing with potting soil. My older brother took over the family garden when he was eight and built his first greenhouse out of scrap lumber at age 15. He's now home from college and spending the weekend sleeping on a cot that he can store in the closet by day so he has more space in his bedroom to work with the seedling trays resting on every available surface. His college roommates amazingly tolerate the grow lights that switch on automatically at 4 a.m. in their dorm room. This weekend, my brother is explaining what he's learned in botany classes about regional farming techniques that trace back to prehistoric indigenous practices like adapting to microclimates and the use of intercropping, viewing each plant's role in the context of the whole biological system. I implore him to explain it all for the zine I'm creating, and his handwritten treatise is nestled between pages of collage. I am 18 years old, a freshman in college, and my boyfriend, out of embarrassment, I think, or maybe caring, insists I see a doctor about my skin. The dermatologist has a solution. All these years of topical steroids and your body gets used to it, she explains. And then you need something stronger. I receive my first 10-day pack of oral steroids. I love them. I really love them. I feel energized and happy and hungry. So hungry. It's a joy to eat this much. I barely need to sleep. I can study half the night. Within days, my skin turns soft and smooth like people on TV. A miracle, as advertised. I go to a party with my friends and wonder out loud, maybe I shouldn't drink because of the medication. The last thing I remember is dancing on the countertop, and the next day, everyone wants to give me a high five. Two weeks later, and the fun is over. The heat, the itching, the cracking slowly return. I clip my nails down to my fingertips as recommended so that when I scratch my skin in my sleep, it's less likely to bleed. The following semester, I travel from Minnesota to Glasgow, where I'm studying at an art school, and the current obsession of my art is trees. I've never lived among so much concrete. I'm in a state of perpetual shock at the way these strong and unruly forces of nature are confined to a perfectly square patch of earth the subtraction of a sidewalk tile. This occurs to me as some sort of conceptual art piece unto itself, a commentary on the derangement of culture, or at least a cruel joke. I wonder if I'm the concrete or the tree. Earlier that year, the U.S. declared a war on terror, and every weekend there's a protest at the end of my street in which people dressed like Mickey Mouse shout and stomp, carrying signs that say, the world is held hostage by the American dream. Meanwhile, I'm teased for my eating habits, but not in the way I'm used to. Back home, my friends made me a birthday cake frosted to look like a salad. That way I might actually eat it. I am known for my devotion to nutrition. My vegetarian sandwiches, my granola bars. Here in the UK, my flatmates are appalled 
by my reliance on packaged foods, pasta and sauce from a jar. My roommate in the U.S. once shattered a plate on the stovetop as she tried a novel way to heat up hot dogs. Here, my flatmates share dinners with me, and I am dazzled that teenagers know how to prepare a meal like it's from a restaurant. On the edge of my plate rests an entire half an avocado, and I'm confused about what to do with it. Late one night, I am alone in the studio, frustrated with the project due next week, sitting with the ghost of Thomas Edison, solving my problem with grit, determination, and hard, 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 hard work. My tutor, who had returned to get something from his office, does a double-take and sighs with pity. Always the Americans. Why are you still here? I'm stuck, I explain. But I'm going to figure it out. More sighs. Come with me, he says, and I am whisked from my solitary confinement to his evening of art openings. Bright lights, weird haircuts, beautiful artworks. We walk up the unlit stairwell to a warehouse and open the door into a small room, overtaken by a grand chandelier that hangs from the ceiling and hovers a meter from the floor. The sculpture emanates the only light in the room, and presumably the building, and visitors are confined to sipping their beers on the perimeter, pushed to the edges by the preposterous scale of this glimmering beast. I am astounded. Later that week, in an unprovoked surge of clarity, I know how to finish my project. I start to get it. Sometimes a problem solves itself when focused determination is tempered with release and you let go a little, look up, look around, see the world with new eyes. During the six months I spent in Europe, my lifelong autoimmune condition seems to mysteriously fade into remission. I am lost and lonely and the odd one out, but still, this place seems to suit me. At the farm, my older brother has by now successfully petitioned my dad to stop giving our cows the injections. My dad, anyway, has noticed it's not so simple. It's so much work, controlling every little thing. You have to hire help and spend hours twice monthly corralling the herd and administering their shots. The cows produce more milk, yes, but they also get sick more often. When they get sick, you have to give them antibiotics, and then the milk they produce gets thrown away. It's hard on them. They die younger. My family stops using the drug and also transitions the herd back to pastures, once cultivated cornfields turn to prairie grasses. The cows produce less milk, but they live longer and are healthier and easier to care for. I'm done with college, investigating the world beyond. I have health insurance now and see doctors every week. My devotion, though, can't seem to keep pace with the rapid deterioration of my health. The patches of painful, cracking skin that were once confined to parts of my arms and legs have extended across my whole body. Now, when I take a round of steroids, the immune suppression that provides so much relief also allows the brittle and bleeding skin to become infected, and I am covered with lesions. The solution? Antibiotics. They seem to do the trick, except after every antibiotic episode, a yeast infection follows, along with a profoundly unpleasant treatment. For any reader who is not the proprietor of a vagina, 
Imagine squeezing the contents of an entire tube of toothpaste into, I don't know, your ear canal. My body is a construction zone, continuously gutted and undone. My months could be divided in half, two weeks of steroids and two weeks of antibiotics, and the fallout from both treatments circulating between. I can't sleep. In my efforts to prepare for the dreaded bedtime, I have soaked in a bathtub filled with tepid oatmeal water, slathered myself head to toe in greasy ointment, and covered my limbs in saran wrap. At this point, you think I'm completely crazy. I do too. I finish my chamomile tea and lie in bed, praying to somehow forget that my body is swollen and hot and feels like it's covered in a thousand bee stings. On a good night, I manage four hours. Time for work. I de-mummify myself. I notice that I smell like someone who is not alive. I make a selection from my closet, now exclusively comprising very soft, very voluminous garments, each of which has a permanent layer of lotion on the underside, like those tissues infused with aloe. I walk to work, slowly, tipping my weight from side to side like Frankenstein, trying not to bend my limbs because each time I do is like lighting a fire. I'd prefer not to be alive. I really wouldn't mind if a car ran me over right now. Maybe someone will just fly off the road and my head will smash into the pavement and I'll be free. I call my brother to hear about something going well. He has by now reduced the size of the dairy cow herd to divert his time and resources to constructing a series of greenhouses, selling produce to restaurants and farmers markets. After years of success, the greenhouses have been overtaken by white flies, tiny creatures that feed on juice from stems and foliage, leaving the plants weak, susceptible to disease, and covered in a sticky substance that attracts fungus. He tries several different pesticides, but they don't make a big impact. Aerosol fly sprays kill the adults, but don't reach the larvae, so they keep multiplying. It's out of control and devastating. Home from work, I wash the sheets. The deposits of skin scattered about like fall leaves wash away, but the stain from the ointment seems to be a permanent fixture marking my side of the bed. My relationship is not going well. I'm stressed. The doctors like to point this out. You have stress. I have stress. That seems to be the main problem. All this stress. Psychosomatic, they say. I buy another book about meditation, and I begin practicing in earnest this time. I take a trip, and my best friend and I travel across the nearby border to Canada, where we stay at a hostel. A friendly girl from Korea notices my raging red skin peeking out from under a sleeve. Oh, I used to have that, she says. The doctors tested for food allergies. Now I don't eat peanut butter and it went away. It went away, she said. She waved a wand made of something besides peanut butter, and poof, it went away. Well, I asked my doctors about food allergies, and they say it's definitely not that. Did they do tests? No, because it's definitely not that. Hmm. We changed the subject. It's 2006, and we don't have food allergies in America. I've asked and asked and asked. 
I've even done an elimination diet, avoiding common allergens as recommended by the fledgling internet. It didn't help. The doctors insist I stop looking at the internet. It's definitely, definitely, definitely not that. I'm at the doctor's office, setting on the thin, crispy paper that covers the baby blue examination table, wearing a baby blue examination garment, a crunchy paper rectangle with a tiny pale blue tie that begs the question, which way does it face? Today, the tie is at the nape of my neck. My back is exposed, and I'm hunched over and sobbing. The dermatologist explains that what's happening now is that because the skin plays a vital role in regulating body temperature, and so little of my skin is operational, it's fluctuating from too hot to too cold, back and forth like a pendulum. So that explains why I go from feeling like I'm on fire to being covered in beads of cold sweat, seeping into each open sore like lemon juice on a paper cut. And then the other thing. The red, itchy bumps that now cover the final vestiges of undestroyed skin on my neck, creeping up onto my jawline and my cheeks. That's a drug rash. I've developed an allergic reaction to the antibiotic, so I need to stop using that one and switch to a new one. I can't look her in the eye. I can't believe she is so calm. I can't believe that describing my appearance constitutes a job. I can't believe she's being paid for this and by me of all people. I ask one more time, feebly peeking out through tears. Is there a reason this is happening? Allergies? Mold? All those nasty chemicals from the new carpets in my building? You hear about these things. What can I do? No, no, definitely not. You've got to stop reading the internet. This is a genetic thing. You'll be this way for life. You need steroids, antibiotics, and to better manage stress. You seem stressed. I can't look at her. Boiling tears are leaping from my face like a cartoon. Your medication gave me a drug rash. Me, the person who came to you because my body is a drug rash. The dam breaks. The sobbing is torrential now and I submerge my face in my hands. The doctors fade to apparitions, and I am alone. A collection of soft, fragmented whispers that have been there all along at last cohere. Maybe these people are wrong. My interior lights up with the glimmering chandelier from art school, pressing up against the edges, leaving room for nothing else. I remember what it's like to let go of fixation. To look up, look away, explore the universe beyond. I don't have to come back here anymore. After all these months of excruciation and all these years of wishing and begging for the cocktail of health, the holiest of words roll off my tongue. Fuck off.
Okay, fine. I didn't say it. I only wish I had. On my way out the door, I am in fact impounded in the waiting room. One must supply a copay for experiences like these. As I sat on the chair designed more for stacking neatly than for holding bodies, still wiping tears from my face, a nurse approaches me. He had previously darted in and out of my torture chamber while handing off some charts. He whispers in my ear, My kid's condition really improved when we changed his diet. Oh. I look up at his kind face. He looks into my eyes, and I feel like a human being. My brother tells me that a farmer visiting the area from the Netherlands stopped by to see the greenhouses and, noticing the infestation, offered a solution. Incarcia formosa, a type of wasp that feeds on whitefly pupa. The wasps keep the whitefly population in check and don't damage the fruiting plants. Insecticides, my brother explains, kills some of the pests, but they kill their predators, too, so you end up with ongoing imbalances and are worse off in the long run. It's better, he discovers, to cultivate an environment that harmonizes with the inherent symbiosis of the living world. I see a flyer at the food co-op where I've been a member for years, saying there's a doctor across the street. I look across the street and don't see an office. I see a house. I call the number. He's an osteopath, a chiropractor, and four or five other suspicious-sounding qualifications, one of which lodges in my memory as doctor of quackerpractics. They don't take insurance. Spending $150 on a single doctor visit is a monstrous proposition for a person earning just above minimum wage. But I will try one more thing. Not only does his office look like a house on the outside, it looks like a house on the inside, too. He sets me down on the couch and asks about my life. I feel his warmth, his care, his presence. So I explain it all. The lifetime of pain, the sleepless nights, the depression, the way steroids help, but then it's almost like everything is even worse afterward. He looks at me, into my eyes. We're going to figure this out he says. Sunlight is streaming through the window. And we're going to need your intuition. My intuition. I have never heard such a thing from a doctor, or anyone for that matter. He leads me across the room, pokes and prods and performs several tests that strike me as utterly implausible, and announces that I have several food intolerances. I inform him that I've already tried the elimination diet and it didn't help at all. For how long? Two whole weeks! For the severity of your symptoms, it will take a few months to really heal. Later that week, I have blood tests done, and he informs me that I have a severe deficiency of vitamin D, the worst he's ever seen. I am low in lots of things, and he loads me up with prescription potency supplements and hands me a quaint Xerox packet of recipes. We briefly discuss the do's and don'ts of this meal plan, and I sign up for a class at the food co-op called Cooking to Reduce Inflammation. I embrace turmeric. I cook real meals. I think I might be feeling a little better, and I stick with this new plan. Now we need a drum roll. Now we need confetti. 
Now we need trumpets and angels from a Baroque scene of heaven. It works! As the weeks roll on, my skin slowly, slowly, slowly begins to heal. Winter becomes spring, and spring becomes summer, and I am wearing t-shirts. Not translucent, voluminous, vintage, bell-sleeved peasant tops, but t-shirts. Now, as I walk to work, feeling the breeze against my skin and the sun on my face, I bend my limbs, not like an undead zombie, but like a really, truly, risen-from-the-dead human being. I appreciate all those cars for all this time managing to somehow keep to their lanes and avoid careening off onto the sidewalk. I notice that not only is my skin healed, but I also have more energy, more clarity, things I didn't even know to wish for. I think back on all those elementary school afternoons, struggling to keep pace, desperate to go home and sleep. For the first time in my life, I feel able to endure a full day of existence. I had never complained of stomach pain, but apparently I just took that for granted as my constant companion because now my stomach feels like nothing, like it's not even there. I fling myself into life, the reasons for living. My friends and I ride bikes to the dive bar that reminds us of our hometown and where Woody Harrelson was rumored to have been thrown out for refusing to wear shoes. We watch fireworks from the old stone bridge. We swim in the lake under the moonlight, and life is so far beyond tolerable, I can't believe it. With my regimens in place, it seems I'm fully operational, and I celebrate by becoming some sort of artist mendicant, traveling to art colonies across the country and the world. In all these different places, I notice that more and more products on grocery store shelves boast things like local and organic. And I wonder if this really reflects collective values, signs of care, signs of hope. Yet when I visit the region where I was raised, I see something else. During the decades of experiences that led my family to scale back and diversify our farm, more and more land has been converted into monocropped chemical agriculture, herbicides and pesticides, depleting the soil as antibiotics deplete the gut eradicating the microbiota we depend on for life. The quality of our soil affects the quality of our food. And allergies, it turns out, are not just about the foods themselves, but also the chemicals we spray on them. What I need you to know is this. In all my wandering, I find myself living in multiple sites of Rust Belt aftermath. Cities filled with vacant buildings pulled apart by vines and foliage. I began a series of artworks inspired by these plants. I am especially amazed by the occasional trees sprouting from crumbling mortar. I am leaning out of a broken second-story window in the empty building next to my art studio, and I reach toward a tree that has managed to grow from a crack in the facade, biology restoring itself as it always does. I wrap each branch in solar-powered string lights so that when the sun goes down, the lights flick on, limbs outstretched and shimmering. You've just listened to The Concrete and the Tree, written by Sky Gilkerson 
And we have Sky on the show today to talk about this piece and writing life in general. Welcome to the show, Sky. Hi, thank you for having me. So happy to have you on. And I am joined, as always, with my wonderful co-host, Melissa Collings. Hello. It's great to have you all here. All right. Well, let's. I know. I'm excited to talk about this piece. It turned into a theme. This uh, edition did, and uh, this one fits right in. Yes. I know. Not by not by choice or anything. Uh, we'll talk about that here in a minute. But in the meantime, Sky, why don't you tell our audience a little bit about yourself to kick us off? Sure. So, as folks heard from listening to the essay, I was raised on a farm, and um, that's a fourth generation farm in South Dakota. And I eventually made my way to Brooklyn via kind of shorter stints in um, Detroit and Baltimore. And I am currently north of the city in Woodstock, New York at an art residency. Oh, that's great. Terrific. So I lived in Baltimore for a time. Where did you live in Baltimore? Oh, really? Oh, I love Baltimore. Um, Yeah. I was working at the art school at Micah, and I lived pretty nearby. Oh, okay. Yeah. I lived in Canton. I bought a house there for a while, and before that was in, um, I guess, Butcher's Hill, technically. But Okay. Yeah, I had a blast in Baltimore. I have, yeah. like, nothing but good good memories from that time. I know. Me too. I feel like Baltimore is such a bad rap, but I, I loved it. It was so fun as an artist. It's such an artist-run scene. It just yeah. felt really? like it just felt like a playground. Yeah, <laughs> I love that. That's great. That's great. Excellent. So I'm excited to talk about this story, but I, I'm really even more excited to talk about um, your your path to writing and your background. But let's dig into this piece, shall we? And sure, uh, talk about where this came from. And you said as readers have already heard from this essay. So this is autobiographical. This is you. That's right. Okay. Mm. That is something I did not know, um, which is exciting. So, well, it's, I mean, it's a tragic piece, but it's also um, (laughs) inspiring too. Yeah. Because you start off rocky, but, but tell us where this came from and how it started and what made you write it. Yeah. So um, as people also heard in the essay, my background is really as a visual artist. So that's been kind of what has, um, you know, what I've dedicated my life to. But I've always just kept a journal. Um, When I was a little kid, my grandmother gave me this beautiful, like, leather-bound um, I think it wasn't actually leather bound, but it looked like leather bound. <laughs> That's uh, all that matters. You know, sort of magical looking book with like oh, I love gold that. leaf around the edges and a lock and key. Oh. And just told me to write like a few words every day. And I was very enchanted by this object. So um <laughs> so I started I started writing a little bit at that time and you know, just in starts and stops. But by the time I was a teenager, I just kind of couldn't help myself but to to keep a journal always. So what um, did you write in that journal? Forgive me for interrupting you, but was this like day-to-day stuff or were you writing stories? I wasn't really writing stories, although I did write stories like as a very little kid. Um, but I was just like processing the world. And uh-huh. um, in yeah. your magic journal. Yeah, in my <laughs> magic journal. Eventually, I got through the magic journal and just moved on to very regular notebooks. But um, oh no, 
But um, yeah, it's just been something that actually ever since then, I, I just feel like it's kind of my way of keeping keeping track of myself and um, kind of orienting myself in the world. So I feel yeah. like my my visual art has always kind of been more about exploring the world beyond. And then writing has always been about um, kind of more like internal exploration. And, Very interesting. Yeah. Yeah, and you've had some other works published. Tell us about those. Yeah, I mean, so for the most part, it's been kind of a private pursuit with writing. Although, of course, like I write about my own work and that has been, that's been like kind of a part of like my art practice as well. But um, yeah, just the last few years, really, I've been publishing some work, um, mostly about art, like art essays, profiles of artists and mm like exhibition catalogs and essays about artists' work. Yeah, yeah, cool. So when did you write this piece? So this piece was born from pandemic times for me. Okay. So as my, you know, life got rearranged like so many of us, um, yeah. I found myself with a combination of a lot of solitude and being kind of confronted with unsolicited like medical dialogue everywhere you turned and it had me yeah. kind of realize that this moment in my life that I explore in the essay was something that at the time like there's kind of a in the essay there's like a peak moment of you know really kind of falling apart like my body really mm. falling apart and then and then that led thankfully to some resolution and it's yes. like, as soon as I had that resolution, I was so happy to move on. I didn't want to think about it anymore. I went oh, right yeah. to graduate school and just kind of took off on my path. And so I found myself like in 2021, realizing that this was really percolating inside of me and actually just felt like it needed to, to come out. Mm. I love it. It really sounds like you overcame this and you didn't let it bog you down like you said i love that you experienced this moment but as soon as it was resolved you moved on but it was still percolating so i wonder i wonder exactly where this was kind of inside of you waiting to come out on the paper i think that's really interesting but and mm. then who is going to be inspired by this because it, this is a really hard thing to go through and i feel like you would carry scars mental scars emotional not just emotional yeah, yeah yeah not just physical ones but emotional ones um having gone through this yeah um I love that question of where was it living inside of me and now I'm thinking about that I'm like that's a great question I'm sure we probably all have some little cavernous places where these oh, things definitely. are stored yeah, yeah. Uh, and you don't even realize it sometimes until you're sitting down and yeah, I mean, that was the thing, I think, for me was just having it bubble up and, and then acknowledging like, okay, this does feel like it's, it's maybe I thought it was settled and now it feels unsettled. Yeah. And also mm. with distance and time, I think, you know, there's kind of a beauty to, to looking back and being able to see something like a little bit more of a holistic picture than you're able to in the moment. Sure. Well, what you said, moment in time, I mean, I, this was years, right? This yeah. was like your life. That's so. right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there was like an episode where it was like very severe and felt very predominant, but but it was, yeah, it was it was my life basically since childhood. Right, right. Yeah. Can you talk about, I'm just, 
I'm so curious. I, as everybody who listens to the show knows, I'm fascinated with alternative medicine. Hmm. I am a, a classically trained, I guess, classically or traditionally trained medical provider. And just recently discovered this alternative medicine, you know, functional medicine or an integrative alternative medicine. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I can't say that word. But um, and so I'm fascinated by it. Food as medicine. And so as as we talked about before, incidentally, this has become the theme of this this season. How what did you do what did, to change your life? What were those steps that you took? I mean, it's it's a little bit vague in your piece. And have you found it easy to sustain those changes? Yeah. I mean, it was like, in a way, unbelievably simple considering all that I had kind of explored and tried to do and just how rough things were at the sort of low point. Um, I really changed my diet. And I, I already, as I, I think I, I sort of expressed in the essay, I was always actually interested in I mean, I suppose because I sort of had these things going on for me since childhood, I was always very interested in, um, in, in medicine and in health. And I would say that my friends considered me like really healthy and, you know, I, I cared about what I ate. But I think, you know, looking back, it's like such a different world that we live in now. I think there is like so much more awareness Yes. Um, mm -hmm. of these things now. But at the time, it was really a search to find actually just like good nutritional information. And so yeah. essentially what I did was um, fired my doctors <laughs> that I had been going to. <laughs> yeah. And and then kind of there was just kind of a, a space of kind of being lost and confused and eventually finding, um, yeah, just a really awesome practitioner who I think was similar to yourself, who had more of a conventional training, but had come to find to kind of his own variety of modalities that yeah. um, included nutrition. And it was really like a, it was really like kind of a simple um, nutrition based change that you know, made the world of difference. So then to answer your other question of, is it easy? It's like so easy because... <laughs> The rewards were, I was like, yeah. the rewards yeah. were, you know, so immense. That was just totally, um, you know, no brainer to continue. But it was at the time, it was a little bit of an uphill battle just in terms of like figuring it out and like finding right. food to eat. And I'd say that is so different now. Yes, I think that's great uh, and inspires other people because there are so many people out there, no matter whether it's food or, or writing or whatever you're trying to achieve. That uphill battle, like you said. When you don't know what the right answer is and you're supposedly doing all the right things uh, and then you still don't measure up, that's hard. Yeah. It's hard to stomach no matter what it is. Yeah. Um, but sometimes it takes, you know, opening yourself up to others' advice, others' experience. And what works, just like in writing, what works for somebody and for food might not work for somebody else. You know, that's somebody right. who's eating, quote unquote, healthy garlic supposed to be healthy it yeah. may be damaging somebody else's insides Absolutely. and they're eating tons of garlic and they're like i'm eating so healthy but our definition of healthy is not universal and totally. i think that's that's what people have mm. to have to realize and it's the same thing i think with writing you know it's not a universal answer for what works out there and what people enjoy yeah, I think that's so true and such a good point. And part of the reason why I didn't go into immense specifics with that in the essay was just knowing that it's not like 
you know, and here's the answer. Here's the prescription. Right, you know, right, stop right. here's gluten. what you do. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. yeah. And for me, that was like a huge one. But for some people, yeah, yeah it's there's such a variety. And I think, um, like you said, it is really individual and that can make it that can make it tricky. There can be a lot of trial and error to um, eventually arrive, arrive at what works. Yeah. yeah. And it's, it can be an exhausting, an exhausting journey. Yeah. No true. doubt. Yeah. Well, so your website is gorgeous, by the way, very minimalistic yes, and yes, quite attractive. Oh, thank um, you. So, but, and you say on there, you're an interdisciplinary artist. So yes. what does that mean? Tell us about what you work on. Talk and then the follow-up to that is, does the way you approach that art aspect of your life or that creative aspect of your life influence in any way how you approach the creative writing aspect? Yeah, um, thank you for um, for taking a look at the website. And yeah, inter interdisciplinary to me um, is a way to kind of describe that I, I use a lot of different media for different projects. And what that looks like, I guess some examples, like a lot of my work actually has been based in newspapers. And I think there is just kind of an inherent love of language that has had me be drawn oh, like to that. that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Um, and a lot of, you know, I think it's a lot of the same themes as, as in this essay, um, sort of, um, this respect and regard for the natural world and how we relate as human beings to these ecosystems that hold us. And yet we're these like yeah. strange creatures that create all kinds of like separation and discord with that, mm. um, yeah. And, and so a lot of my art projects uh, kind of deal with that. Maybe one example that I'll share is a project that I did using newspapers where I was just kind of allowing them to amass like the daily paper. And then every new moon, I would burn them. And I initially just was thinking of, of the newspaper as this location of human narrative, right? And like, what is important to us according to our perspective, you know, as summarized in this like daily manner. Yeah. Um, and I wanted to somehow create like a correlation to like cosmic cycles and these like bigger cycles. And it was almost just like a therapeutic thing for me <laughs> to try and like create that um, experience. But then I was left with this pile of ashes and I wanted to do something with that. So I ended up making ink out oh, of the nice. ash. And I just, I just kind of looked up a recipe to make this really basic ink out of ash. And I ended up taking blank newsprint and folding it in the way that a newspaper page is folded, but dropping a little of this ink inside so that, so that when I folded it, it created like a Rorschach type, um, like symmetrical, like ink blot. Drama. Oh, it's mm -hmm. awesome. So it's sort of this that kind of transforms, you know, taking this language and transforming it into just this kind of element. And then they yeah. became these sort of primordial, like because of the symmetry, they, they end up kind of, I think, recalling like bones or like leaves. And they have the, these, these easy kind of references to, yeah, like these natural, um, like primordial like elements of the natural world so then they end up being mm. shown in the gallery it was like a project for a year so there's a set of these 12 newsprint size drawings that i show in like a grid wow Eight. that is very cool <laughs> so then the follow-up is so the way you approach that that's really almost like a 
that's like an outlook, I guess, oops, um, on life in a way. Does that impact how you approach writing? Yeah, I think that it is similar in that, you know, this kind of longing, I think there's like a longing to kind of heal this gap that like, that like human beings have created with like yeah. our connection to the natural world. And so I feel mm. like I'm always reaching towards that with my art projects. And then for writing, it's in a different way. It's more, um, it is kind of more intimate and personal, but I feel mm. like it's a similar, similar um, desire. And for me, probably a lot of it comes back to my experience of the the surroundings where I was raised um, yeah. in South Dakota. It's like the the part of South Dakota where I grew up. It's like very flat, and you have this like immense view of the night sky. And there's this feeling of you know sort of the perspective shift that happens. When oh, I there. love that. Yeah, mm -hmm. like like being at the ocean. You know, just, yes. Like you 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 feel really small. Yeah, uh, but you feel great as well. It's it's a strange phenomenon. It is a strange phenomenon, exactly. It's that feeling of like, wow, I'm so I'm so minuscule compared to this, and yet there's kind of like a rightness with my yeah. place in it. Exactly, oh, wow. exactly. I love that, and I love how you're describing, you know, something becoming something else, becoming something else. I mean, the, the layers in your artwork, um, just to go back to that for a second, is really fascinating. Because when you look at that and, and you hear the story that goes behind that piece of work, it just takes you to different places in your mind, mm. you know, where you would look at it and just think, oh, that's a symmetrical ink blot. It's not. It's so much more. The process by which you created that is a story in and of itself. And so you look at that differently and it connects people too. you know, I think that's a magical thing. Um, I love that. But art is my first love. That's where I... That's where I started. If I had, I probably would have done something as a career in art if I'd known what to do. But oh, I love cool. that so much. And so hearing you describe, too, the way you approach art versus the way you approach art, which I still consider writing an art, mm -hmm. that art mm -hmm. form sure. is very fascinating as well. That's for you. And then people are reading it, though. So they're learning a little bit more about you. And then they're learning about in your artwork the relationship that like that gap. I like how you describe that, the gap that you're trying to create um, between humanity. Yeah. Very nice. Yeah. We're not oh, trying to create. To that. Oh, yeah, yeah. Point you're out. trying yeah. to <laughs> fill in. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Inhabit, maybe. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's a good word. Yeah. yeah. Well, I really enjoy one of the things that, uh, well, first of all, the first sentence is a great line. It kind of draws you in right away. Um, but I love the parallel between sort of the farm and your body, mm. you know, and I think that's a really creative way to tell this story, this journey that you went on. Thank you. Yeah. As I mentioned, like when this story was kind of percolating up in me, it felt very much about um, just, yeah, my experience of my body and this almost like urgency to just express that. And then as I was really kind of building the piece, it occurred to me Something I've thought about a lot is the connection to, you know, thinking of like, uh, yeah, the farm and just the natural world as um, actually really similar. I think especially with the last couple of decades, like the awareness of the microbiome and mm -hmm. all of these yeah. 
bacteria that make life possible for us also, you know, yeah. in the soil and that the health of the soil contributes to the health of food, which obviously is, you know, it's required for our health. Connected. <laughs> it's right, so connected. Right. And so it started to feel like, okay, maybe having kind of experienced this, this parallel observation with my family's farm, you know, it felt like maybe that's a little bit, a little bit more of uh, the unique angle that I have to bring to this. Yes. Very, Very cool. cool. Yeah. So you fill your time with writing and your art. Do you have time to read? Do you read a lot? I do have time to read. And yeah, it's in like spurts, I guess. I feel like in the beginning of, you know, lockdown times, I was reading a ton yeah. and then there was some sort of like information overload that <laughs> occurred yes. essentially. But um but I do, I do love reading. I just started reading um, Merlin Sheldrake's book about mushrooms and tangled life. I love really good sort of accessible science writing. Um, okay. it's, it's fun for me and like inspires my art a lot. Wendell Berry, you can imagine one of my heroes. <laughs> oh, very cool. Yeah. Well, so are you still journaling and or so this story or this creative writing piece is kind of part of your interdisciplinary approach. And um, so do you regularly write or is it just like the journaling and then ideas germinate and turn into essays or how does that process work for you? Yeah, um, I am always journaling. I tried to stop at one point. I was like, <laughs> what is this like ridiculous pile of books that I'm like dragging <laughs> around with me to different <laughs> locations and like, I don't feel that anybody needs to read these, probably myself included. Um, <laughs> so I've, I've actually tried to give it up and then I just get honestly like disoriented in life. So I've kind Interesting. of... Interesting, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, um, so I, I guess, yeah, I kind of have just realized that it seems to be something that I need to do. Yeah. Um, like for myself, but but in terms of writing that I'm sharing with others, I... I've been writing these kind of just short letters to like, I guess, entities, maybe I'll call them. I'm writing like a letter to the sun and a letter to the moon, mm -hmm. um, a letter to the soil, <laughs> a letter to darkness, maybe to the wind. And so those, um, I'm seeing them as being quite related to the art that I'm working on. So I think that they might make their way into even like existing like in an art show. That's what oh, I was going to okay. ask is if they would be included to read within the piece. Yeah. I mean, I could... haven't, I haven't done that, but I'm interested that that feels like it might be happening right now. Oh, I love that. I think that's fantastic. Yeah, that's very cool. And then you could even take those pieces and, you know, create your own submission to start putting out there in a different way too, kind of drawing on both drawing on each other. Yeah, I mean, Both I'm mediums. definitely, I, I'm, I feel like I'm relatively new to, to sharing, to even how to share my writing. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Very cool. Do you ever go back? You said you don't know that anybody should look at what you have written <laughs> in your journals, but do you ever go back? I'm curious. And yeah, no, I totally do. Yeah, I totally do. I actually think it is instructive for me in a way because it's just interesting. It's totally interesting to see kind of yeah. where, where you're at in the place in life and to see kind of these cycles. And yeah. um, it's, it is, it is totally interesting. I just don't write in a way that with the intent, you know, of, of, of sharing yeah. it with, with other people, but right. Um, 
No, it is interesting to kind of keep track of myself, I think. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, the perspective change over time has got to mm-hmm. be what, you know what I mean? You must look back on everything with such a different perspective. Yeah, yeah. I actually, like the newspaper piece that I was describing, burning the newspapers, actually my original inspiration was to burn my journals. I was Whoa. like, oh my I was like, why, like, why do I have all of these? I got uh, very into the... Um, the decluttering um, book that everybody was really into years ago. Marie Kondo. Marie Kondo. I just thought that was beautiful (laughs) and I was way into it. And so that was like on the chopping block. And I was like, I was (laughs) like. not spark joy. These do not spark joy. And so um, like my childhood best friend was like, I will stand between you and that bonfire. Like don't (laughs) burn the journals. (laughs) She's a writer. Yeah, she's a writer too. So I was like, okay. So I I didn't do it, but I wanted to do it. And I thought maybe like what they are for me is, yeah, just this process. And maybe like every new moon, just say goodbye, you know? And I've thought about composting them. I've thought about (laughs) like cutting them up into just individual words and like rewriting them, like make make a better story or something. So (laughs) I don't know. They're just sitting there staring at me like, I think wanting to be undone somehow and maybe reconfigured. Uh, well, you should figure out some way to archive them first, and then you can do that to them. You I think don't know. So? I just, That's I what do. my friend thinks. Yeah. She's yeah. Like, I mean, One sure. Day, you might be glad. Definitely. Yeah. I mean, it's yeah. not very many people have the fortitude or you know, determination, whatever it is that you know to write every day to do that and to collect that. I think that's. Uh, I think it's wonderful, and I would totally hold on to that. Yeah. Okay. Yes. I agree. Oh. That's something yeah. for you to look back on, like, you know, J.W. was saying, to learn about yourself and where you were and how your perspectives have changed. And I think yeah. it's great. I've heard that it's therapeutic for people to write. I wish I could do that every day, to write in a journal every day. Yeah. Uh, to to make yourself a little more organized and kind of gather your thoughts and to feel that clarity in some of the recommendations for how to just live better and mm. feel better every day. You know, sure. getting that out on the page mm-hmm. helps you to organize, see where you are mm-hmm. and all of that. So I think that that's something that if anybody is listening that or they feel scattered and, you know, they're <laughs> not sure what they want, they could even start doing that. And you can discover things about yourself as you're writing and then yeah. rediscover them when you forget. Yeah, yeah sure, because you will. <laughs> yeah, I know I would. Well, it is amazing sometimes to look back and be like, I don't know at all what I'm talking about. Like, <laughs> wow, I've completely that's forgotten this episode. So. That's so funny. <laughs> yeah. See, that that in itself is awesome. Yeah. <laughs> you can't burn that. At, yeah. At not yeah. Saving it. Well, I know. I mean, you'd never probably really be confronted with your gaps in memory <laughs> if you didn't have that. Yeah. Kind yeah. Of that's true. Record. So yeah, I, I'm going to take that. I'm going to take both of your recommendations and <laughs> consideration. <laughs> and you know yeah. what would be really fantastic is this just came to my mind. It might be a horrible idea because it's your personal thoughts. But if you took like a page and you did a series of artwork and you took and you, you scanned that page in, you made a copy and then you burned the actual work, created something from the ashes like you did before mm-hmm. with your newspaper. And then that drawing can be a symbol, a, a symbol for mm. what's right there beside it, if you cared to share, because that's kind of intimate, so you may not want to share, but any piece that you did, you have that piece, that printed piece, up beside <laughs> that piece. I'm just seeing it right oh now. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, you should no. do a journal. No, that's really, yeah, no, I think that's really, that's interesting. And 
as you're describing, like taking language and somehow, yeah, burning it or something, destroying it somehow, and then and then remaking it visually, like it, yeah. it does feel to me like that that is kind of the difference, right, between between writing and visual art is there is this level of abstraction with visual art. And I feel yeah. like there is something very like gracious about that, that it becomes very open yeah. and can sort of maybe mean multiple things. And um, yeah. that does sound, uh, I don't know. I, I do feel like there's something very alive in that transformation. Yeah. Very I cool. Agree. Wow. And yeah, you should definitely keep a journal, Melissa. Because <laughs> <laughs> then you could do it. <laughs> then I could, but then I would probably be terrified and be like, no, <laughs> let's keep those thoughts inside. <laughs> that's the thing. Yeah, that's the thing. That's funny. But I am writing a novel. So those, those thoughts probably come out in the novel. And so people are probably like, what? What are you? Oh, my. <laughs> well, there you go. Yeah, that's a big endeavor. Crazy. All right. Well, we're already coming up here on time. Um, so this is a, a new question that we've put into our list of questions. And um, so do you remember the first book that made you cry or, uh, or. the first book that really had an impo- impact on your life? Ooh, um, I could probably answer both of those. Well, do it. That's fine. <laughs> I do have a very distinct memory of the first book that made me cry. I was pretty little. And I, I kind of think of this as my first like encounter with art. That really ah. got my attention, um, which was I was assigned to read Where the Red Fern Grows oh, as yeah. a little kid. I don't know if you read that. I don't know that one. You don't know that? No. It's a classic. Uh. I think it's considered a classic. I can't say that I remember it at all I at this either, point. I can't either, but yeah. Like, <laughs> I don't, so I don't remember, but I do remember that there is a part in this book that is just deeply tragic and i remember just being totally overcome mm. with empathy mm. in in a way that i and i like didn't know it was happening like i was mm-hmm. i was probably i don't know maybe i was like eight or something when they have you read it in school and i um was just blown away you know i'm just like sobbing and i'm just totally <laughs> inhabiting this character and i'm yeah. totally like totally like having this experience that he's having and then at the same time being like, whoa, like what's happening to me? I'm just completely like lost in this story. So I think that that really like was the first, you know, time that I sort of realized the immense power art. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. I um, like that. And what was the second question? Well, they're two together. But so mm-hmm. if, you, if, if people can't remember that first book, yeah. we well, get the opportunity <laughs> to talk about uh, the first book that kind of changed your life or really impacted your life or mm. something along those lines? Well, there are so many of those, but what comes to mind is a book called The Timeless Way of Building. Mm. And mm. it's actually an architecture textbook. But oh. it's, <laughs> wow. It's, I know. But I it's love written, that. Yeah, it's written like a book of poetry and oh. it's just totally beautiful. And so it's all about literally how to build a building but the way that it's written it's so about like how to build a life and um, wow that sounds fascinating yeah i really recommend it to everyone it's called the timeless way of building all right i need to figure out some way to add these to our show notes we don't really have a a highlight that's a good idea yeah yeah, i gotta figure out how to do that so folks can come back later yeah yeah i have i have um an art essay out there that is is sort of based on on this book as well mm. and um, yeah it's a, i really recommend it to everyone 
Great. Cool. Oh, I like that. One of my characters in in the novel that I wrote previously is an architect. And, oh. and so, and, but he's, you know, kind of got this artsy side. So I, I need to delve into that. Oh, you need to delve into that. There's so yeah. much beautiful writing about architecture. The other, um, another just incredible book is um, The Poetics of Space. Mm. Gaston. And it's just totally, totally beautiful. Hmm. Maybe you should have been an urban planner or something. I know. I, I, <laughs> yeah. I really, yeah. I mean, I studied sculpture and I think somehow through that I had an era of, of obsession with, with just. Yeah. yeah. That's very cool. Very cool. <laughs> All right. Well, we're coming up on our last question then. Melissa, do you want to throw this one out? Sure. Okay. What advice or resources would you recommend to aspiring writers or curious listeners? Hmm. Yeah, it's interesting to to try and feel like I'm qualified to give advice to writers. I think it's you can so give an artistic. Anything artistic. from your perspective, yeah. it's all good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. no, and and for artists as well. I mean, I think it's so um, it's so individual what works for different people. But I think you know to be in it for the long haul. I guess something that helps me is just to recognize that that involves a lot of starts and stops and false yeah. starts and changing directions and feeling like oh wow like I just spent a lot of time on something that's like not sort of coming to fruition I don't know I just think that yeah. there's so many ups and downs that if you don't sort of yeah, I think early on you know a person can can feel discouraged like something's not going right in that and so yeah. I guess I would just say that you are doing it and it is going right yeah. and it's just you know to kind of keep going through those through those times I think that's good advice because you can like as one thing that you said was that you can spend a long time writing something and it doesn't go anywhere yeah and you can think I've wasted all this time yeah. but it's not it's not mm -hmm. a waste everything that you write even if you don't use it it has grown you as an artist or a writer yeah. mm -hmm. or or just as a person, yeah. you have grown from that step and you may not see it, but it's getting you where you want to be, Yes, where you need to be. And I just, I think that's great. I think that's a great advice. Well, I love how you, yeah, summarized it there. I think it can be easy to lose track of that, but that seems like a very helpful frame for those moments. <laughs> Absolutely. I think it's really good advice. Yeah. Yeah. It's practice, basically, you know, everything yeah. that you do towards the art, yeah. your writing, whatever, it's all practice and practice is never bad. Yeah, it's yeah. Part of, it's part of the process. Yeah. yeah, that's good. All right. Well, thanks so much, Sky, for submitting this piece and letting yes. us narrate it and get it out to the world. And then also, obviously, talk with you. It's been a lot of fun. Thanks oh. for coming on the show. Thank you so much. Well, we wish you the very best. Thanks so much, Sky. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much for listening. We hope you enjoyed the show. If so, please help us spread the word by telling your friends or giving us a rating and review on your favorite podcast app. Those reviews really make a difference. The Story Discovery Podcast is a free, narrated podcast of the works that appear in Etched Onyx magazine. Edited by J.W. McAteer, all stories and poems are available for free at onyxpublications.com. That's O-N-Y-X publications.com. If you'd like to support the continuation of this podcast and or the magazine, please consider a small donation through Patreon at patreon.com slash onyxpublications. As a nano publishing house, we are always looking for new works to showcase. If you'd like to submit a story or poem for consideration, 
please visit the submissions page on our website. In the meantime, keep reading and writing.